This morning, I'm stoked to be able to share that we're going to be talking about Jesus' sacrificial life um, that he calls for us to participate in. And, and Steve actually, I'm going to start with a story that Steve shared uh, a while back, about six months or so ago, but it's one of my favorite stories that talks about gen, uh, joining in with Jesus and his call for us to participate in his life. And it's the story of, of the tightrope walker, the great Blondini, or Blondin. In the late 1800s, there was this dude named London. He was, he was the greatest tightrope walker at the time, and he used to love going across the, 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 the Niagara Falls, this incredible waterfall, right? And he would set the rope across, 300 feet across it, and he'd walk across. And, and at that time, what, he was so famous at this time because he wouldn't just walk across, but then he'd do crazy things. He'd take a chair out and sit in the middle. He'd, uh, at one point, he carried his manager on his back across it. And at one point, he takes a hot plate out in the middle, cooked up an omelet, and ate an omelet right in the middle, hanging over the falls, right? And the whole time, the crowd's cheering 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 the great blondin of how amazing he was and everyone celebrating what an incredible feat he it was or how amazing he was at this incredible feat and there was one time then that he even went and he put on a blindfold and he pushes a wheelbarrow across here's a picture of that he pushes a wheelbarrow across the tightrope right blindfolded walking across it and he gets to the other side and upon reaching the other side the people are just amazed at how incredible this guy is and all that he's done and, and shouting how wonderful it is and then he asks them the question do you think i can go back to the other side Obviously, everyone is excited as can be, saying, yes, go for it. And then he asks the most important question of how many of you are willing to get into this wheelbarrow? What gives someone a volunteer? Join me and come across, right? And of course, silence. There was no takers. Everyone fully believed that he was capable of doing this incredible feat, and, and they loved spectating and watching him do this incredible adventure, but they didn't want to take part in it themselves. They were as excited as they could be about him doing his stuff, but they wanted to leave it in his boat, right? In, in, in his hands. And so often this becomes much of our Christian journey as well, right? That Jesus has called us to participate in this new life with him. Yet often we'd rather sit back and, and praise him and maybe just sing songs about how amazing he is rather than actually join him in this journey that he's called us to of a life with him. And so today we're going to look at Jesus's sacrificial life that he's called us to. One of the ways that it's been described over the years is called the cruciform life, the, which means the cross-shaped life that Jesus calls us to. So scripture tells us that Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate act of love. So in Romans chapter 5, in verse 6 through 8, Paul says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person someone might would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul says this is how God demonstrated to us his incredible love. Jesus dies for us while we are still sinners. Or in the Gospel of John, John says it clearly in John 15, 13. He says, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus says, this is the example of what the greatest love of all is. Jesus lives his entire life demonstrating this love for us. His entire life is being poured out for us and poured out for others. And it doesn't mean he didn't care for himself. It doesn't mean he just, he, that he, he was exhausted all the time as a result of it. I mean, in fact, Jesus regularly took time alone. He, he often took time to get away, to recharge, to be with his father and to be with his disciples and his friends. Jesus went... In the midst of all that he did, he regularly took that time to make sure that he wasn't giving away what he didn't have, but he was rooted deeply in his father. But Jesus was always otherly in all that he did. It was for the sake of others. It was a life poured out. It was sacrificial, meaning that it, he, it was a denial of self-interest. 
in obedience to the Father, through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, he lived his life solely for the interests of others, constantly looking at how can I pour into them. And his life, was, again, was not lived for himself, but for the sake of others. His actions were not considering how he would benefit, but how he could pour into others and love those around him. And his life was laid down, not just at the cross, but in all the actions that he did. I mean, the majority of every healing described in Scripture says he has moved out of compassion. It is for them that he is doing it. It is not for self-glorification. In turning the water into wine, it, it wasn't for himself, but it was out of obedience to the Father, but then out of care for his mother and for the other guests that were there. I mean, everything he does is for the sake of others, sacrificially caring for the people around him. The Gospel of John builds to the great climax in chapter 13 of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, right? Of him doing this ultimate act of service, where, which would have been outrageous in that society at that time. And he washes their feet and then tells us, now you go and do just as I have done. Ultimately, though, the ultimate act of Jesus' love, as he tells us, is shown for us as he gives his life for us on the cross. Dying the most excruciatingly torturous death on a cross on our behalf. This is the ultimate display of his love. Literally laying his life down for us. Dying the most horrific death known to man at the time. And he did it for us that we could be restored to relationship with him. So we could break the power of sin and death. Again, it's a life poured out for us. And so as Christians, I mean, the cross becomes the symbol of our faith. I mean, every church has a cross hanging somewhere around it, right? It's our symbol that Jesus gave his life for us. It's a horrific symbol of torture, of bloodshed, and yet it becomes the symbol of our faith for Jesus. It's amazing. I mean, this horrific becomes our symbol. I mean, could you imagine a Jewish person today wearing some type of thing around their neck that looked like a, a, a gas chamber from Auschwitz? right, that they wore around their neck. I mean, that would be horrific to memorialize that in such a way, but that's what we do at the cross. Because Jesus called us to see the cross not as an ultimate act of horror, but as the symbol of his greatest love for us. Because Jesus chose to go to the cross. He chose to sacrifice his life for us. And so this horrific torture device becomes a symbol of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. You know, back years ago when I was working at Christian Supply, there was a woman that came in one day. We sold all sorts of, of Jesus junk and jewelry and all sorts of other things that were there, right? And uh, we had a display of overpriced jewelry that we kept right next to the counter, right? And, and, and I, and anyways, this woman came in to buy, a, to, she wanted to buy a necklace. And she said, I want a necklace, a Christian necklace, but I don't want a cross. She's like, do you have a dove or something peaceful? She's like, I will never wear a cross. I'm like, why not? And she says, because that's like wearing a machine gun around your neck. That's evil. I don't want a cross. I want a dove. That's peaceful. Right? Very piously saying that, but what this woman didn't get is it's Jesus who tells us about the cross. It's Jesus who points us to it. It's him that redeems this incredible act, this incredible, horrific torture device to become a symbol of love and sacrifice. I mean, like with everything else that Jesus touches, whether it be a leper or a prostitute or anything else that is, that, that is not lovely and beautiful, he takes the most horrific symbol ever created at that time, and he takes it from one being one that symbolizes fear and death to symbolizing hope and life. And so the cross becomes the centerpiece of the entirety of the New Testament. And it becomes central to our faith as well. And we praise God for it. We thank Jesus for his sacrifice. And as we should, we sing endless songs about Jesus' death on the cross for us. As we should, we thank him to no end. 
And there's some amazing songs out there singing how wonderful the cross is. I mean, for like, when I survey the wondrous cross, or at the cross, or how deep the Father's love for us, or this is amazing grace, or, at, or once again. I mean, so many beautiful songs that we can sing to remind ourselves the incredible gift that he's given us. I mean, one of my favorites is This is Amazing Grace. I love that song. I mean, you guys know that song? You know, this is amazing grace, right? This is unfailing love, right? That goes on, that you would take my place, that you would bear my cross. You lay down your life that I would be set free. Oh, Jesus, I sing for all that you've done for me, right? A beautiful song to proclaim the way that we now live for him because of, of what he's done for us. And it's such a beautiful song. And we need to meditate on the reality of how thankful we are for the cross, but the thing is, for many of us as Christians, so often our meditation ends there with Jesus dying on the cross. And the cross ends there as a meditation of the beauty of his love for us. And that is worth meditating upon. The thing is, with Jesus, though, there's another aspect of that, of where now he comes and he says, it's time for you to pick up your cross. Scripture makes it abundantly clear that Jesus then calls for us to lay our lives down for him and for one another, just like he did for us. And this is the part where we as Christians often give Jesus lip service, where we say this stuff, we, we believe it, we know it's true. It's been repeated by John and Paul and Peter countless times in scripture, but oftentimes we don't really want to take him seriously on this part. It's a lot easier to thank him for what he's done than to get in that wheelbarrow and say, Lord, what does it mean for me to take up my cross? And sometimes we kind of assume that maybe he didn't really mean it that way. I mean, what could he actually mean by saying we're supposed to do that? But obviously, he says it, and he says it multiple times. So let's go to Matthew chapter 16. And this is right after Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to be killed and suffer many things. He gives them the hardest truth he ever tells them, and it's here in verse 24. He says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what good will it do a person if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Jesus says that if they want to be his followers, they must deny their own interests. They must take up their cross and follow him. Luke tells us that this is a daily thing, that daily they're supposed to take up their cross. So it's not a reference to physically dying on a cross, right? But it's an admonition to live a sacrificial life on behalf of others. As Christians, we're called to put the interest of others ahead of our own. I like the way that Dr. Rodney Reeves puts this in his commentary on, on the book of Matthew. He says this, he says, For Jesus, this wasn't a matter of dying for them, for the disciples. Jesus expected his disciples to die with him. To, for, for that would be the only way that they would save their life, by losing it. Jesus would have no cheerleaders. Disciples who would try to encourage him from the sidelines as they watched him die for their sins, saying, we're praying for you, Jesus. Lord God, please help Jesus carry his cross. God, give Jesus the strength to die for our sins. Come on, Jesus, you can do it. Don't give up. We're right here. If you make it to the end, we'll love you forever. No, Jesus will have no spectator disciples. Jesus isn't performing for us, but he's inviting us into his way of life. Jesus is telling his disciples that they too must lay down their lives for him and for others. That the cross is not just how Jesus died, but the cross must be how we as his followers live. This cruciform life, cross-shaped life. 
And so let's take a little bit of a look at, at what else Scripture has to say about this, because it has a lot to say. We'll just do a small survey here. We'll start in Philippians chapter 2. I, I looked at this passage, I mean, I think it was last January we were preaching through Philippians, and we looked at it then, but I want to look at it again. It says, in verse, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So just before this, Paul said that if you've received anything good from Jesus, anything good at all from being united with him, then you must love like him. And here he says, you must value others above yourselves. Consider their interest just as you would consider your own or even more. You must look to, must look to others' interests over your own. Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jesus just said, right? Look to others' interests. Lay down your own interests for the interests of others. And again, not to be a doormat for abuse by others. Jesus regularly made sure that he was healthy and that he was rested. But he, con he continues this in verse 5, and he goes on to say in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul now says that they must treat one another, they must have the same mindset that Jesus had. So how does he describe this mindset then? Verse 6, Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being found in human likeness, I'm sorry, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul couldn't possibly be any clearer here of what he's saying for. This mindset, he's saying, is in the same way that Jesus came from heaven to earth, that God gave everything up to enter into humanity, this is what it means to consider the interests of others better than yourselves. And the way that Jesus not just came to earth, but specifically the way he died a death on a cross, Paul says this is the mindset we must have when it comes to how we love one another. We must love like Jesus did in a cross-shaped way, a cruciform way that's a denial of self-interest considering how we can love others. Now amazingly, this particular passage historically is primarily used as a passage of worship to look at Jesus and say, wow, look how amazing Jesus is. But that's not why Paul put this here. It's not written here so we would stand back and go, wow, Jesus, you're amazing. Look how wonderful you are. It's there by Paul because Paul is saying this is the model of how we are to live. This is the example that Jesus gives us. And it's modeled after how Jesus loved us. Jesus didn't come on earth to wow us, to amaze us with his amazing magic tricks and performances or so we can marvel of how amazing he is. He didn't call for us to be his cheerleaders and to shout from the sidelines, well done, Jesus, keep going. Or for us to ooh and awe at how amazing he is, like he's the great blonde and walking across the tightrope. But he called for us again to get into that wheelbarrow, to join him on this self-sacrificial life that's shaped like a cross in how we love one another. His sacrificial life becomes the model for all of us who are followers of Jesus. And he's going to say it many, many times in many different ways. And I want to look at a few more of these as we continue this morning. So here's a verse we looked at last week when Jesus gives his new command in John 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. This is just after he washes the disciples' feet and tells them to do the same. And then he says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Right? So Jesus becomes the standard. 
It doesn't get much clearer than that. But in the next verse, he does make it even more clear. He says in the very next verse, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus says, this is what will set you apart as my disciples. This is how people will know that you are followers of me when you love them the way that I have loved you. When you seek others' interests over your own. When the cross-shaped life becomes your default. I mean, this is such a beautiful truth and one that we must live out daily in our lives. You know, as a body here at Northview, I've said it before, I just want to say it again, this is what stood out to us about Northview as we've been here over the years from when you first adopted us back in 2008. And every time that we come in, we've always felt cared for. And so when we were moving back to America, we knew this was the number one place we wanted to land. And since being here for the last year that we've been here, again and again, we see the selflessness on behalf of this community. You know, this, this week literally marks one year since we arrived into Seattle here at Northview. Though the first month, I think, was spent in, in, in quarantine because we got COVID on the way over. But uh, this community, when we arrived, they guys rallied for us. It was amazing to watch the self-sacrificial love. When Sarah and I came to America with our three boys, we came just with suitcases. And when we drove cross-country to come here, we were expecting that I'd have to, you know, that day we arrived, I was going to run to Walmart and buy like an airbed, and, and we'd just uh, slowly start putting stuff together. But we arrived, we arrived to a fully furnished home. Where most, I mean, so many of you, I couldn't believe the amount of people that had all been in the house that we were renting, because so many of you came and helped and donated and were part of sacrificing to make that a home for us. When we arrived, we went to the kitchen, and every single surface was covered with dishes and pots and pans and, and boxes and appliances and everything we would ever need. Our, our boys' room, because we didn't have any toys, was so packed with toys, the more than they could ever play with in a life, including someone that gave us like their whole 1990s like, Star Wars toy collection that made me want to immediately like, stick it high up on a shelf and say, not for you guys, that's for daddy, right? Um, no, they, we've let them play with it. But uh, I was jealous every time they did. But uh, I mean, and, and we had a... We, we, we had a, a pantry that was got stocked when we got there. In fact, we haven't had to buy uh, paper towels or garbage bags in the last year that we've been here. I mean, we were blessed over the top. And Sarah and I were just in tears when we arrived that first day at the way we've been cared for by this community. We've been on the receiving end of that incredible life that this community has in doing that. And what Jesus is saying here is that kind of love, the love that's sacrificial, that gives towards others, it's not just for the big things. This must be our daily way of life. The daily way of being, of dying to self-interest and seeking the interests of others, of daily asking the Lord, show me how to love those around me the way that you love me, Jesus, in ways that I get nothing in return, where I'm not even noticed for it. Lord, show me how to love and pour into others the way that you poured into me. Point out to me who I should, I should pursue. Inconvenience me. There's a word we seem to have kind of lost in the midst of COVID. Right? We, everything's about convenience now of not ever being around other people we don't like or around different opinions or going to shops if it's too different. And so it's, it's inconvenient we don't do it. But essential to this life in Christ is, Lord, inconvenience me with people who I don't necessarily get along with or people that are different than me or people that are hurting in ways that will cause me to miss plans or to make changes to my schedules or something else. Inconvenience my life, Lord. Break into my rhythms of my routines and break me out of it to see how you are at work in the world around me. And that's true of the big things, like when we rally together as a church for the, for the Move the Mountain campaign that allows Sarah and I to be here, or, or as we're doing in a couple weeks for, for step by step as we all gather together and pour into that community. And that's awesome for the big things. And for right now, this financial you know, hurdle that we're seeing of this faith step we're taking as a community heading into this next year. And it's for the big things, but even more so, it's for the small things, the seemingly mundane things, the day in, day out ways in which God has called us to love others the way that he has loved us. 
to lay our lives down on the regular, simple, mundane aspects of life. And the little things that we often overlook of saying, Jesus, show me what you're up to in this person's life. You know, the most core places where we're often confronted this is the two, um, the two most trusted, re- treasured resources that we have, and that's going to be our time and our money. And if we want to grow daily in dying to self and living for Jesus, we can't avoid addressing these two areas in our life with him of our time and our money, our two most precious resources. And you know, so many of our schedules are so full these days that we don't have much time for others. We don't have much time to show hospitality, or maybe we don't have the spare funds to be generous with others. And if we ask Jesus, and I believe we should ask him, Jesus may be asking us to reprioritize how we spend our time, to surrender our schedules and our time to him and the events that we engage in. For Sarah, this has been something very real. We've entered into this American life. Our life in Africa was at a very different pace than life here. And we've entered, we've been blown away by how easy it is to get swept up in all the activities and all the stuff. There is so much going on, and it's so hard to say no when there's so many good things happening, whether it be through church or school or kids or social activities or so much stuff that's happening. It is so easy to fill every single night and each weekend with barely having any time with the family, let alone any time to allow God to inconvenience us, to break us out of it, to seek time for those who are hurting, or to be hospitable, to invite others over for meals on a regular basis. And so Sarah and I have just had to be able to make hard decisions, just say no to a lot of good things in the season. And we're trying to figure this out because there's so much to do. How do we make sure that we always have time for the inconvenient stuff? How do we make sure that we always have time to pour into others? We don't want to be so over-programmed or become slaves to our kids' programs or or to to other social events or slaves to the Seahawks, right? I don't know if that's too much of an idol to touch on here, but, but like the way that, 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 that hour, three hours after Sunday becomes just set in gold standard that nothing could ever touch that time in the fall, right? And maybe the Lord's asking us to reprioritize our time and put our schedule before him of our precious resources. Or maybe it's with our finances as well, right? Sarah and I have had to face the reality of this as well, that in America, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a thing. We live life to the max here, right? We, with all of our time being spent, all of our money being spent, and, and we just, it's, it's just live, life live right to the edge. And Jesus may be asking us to go to him and ask him to reprioritize our finances and, and how we spend it and look again at that next big vacation or, or how we spend our, our money or, or the next big purchase that we have on or just our regular budget to ensure that we have time that's, and money that's available to pour into people who are in need. Jesus makes it so clear. We are called to love one another sacrificially the way he's loved us. And that means we have to have the time and resource to be able to do that. In fact, that command to love one another as I've loved you, Jesus says so many other things like it. And just a couple chapters later, he says it this way in John 15. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I mean, it sounds familiar, right? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We saw that one earlier too. 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't know what Jesus could say to make it more clear than that. But you're my friends if you do what I command you. What's that? To sacrificially lay your lives down for one another. This, Jesus says, who my friends are, those that are always seeking the interests of others. You know, some of us, we can see this, ah, that's just Jesus. He always speaks in hyperbole, right? He's the one that said that we'll do greater things than him. So clearly that's just exaggeration. That's just Jesus speak. We have to reinterpret it. Okay, well then let's see what Paul has to say. Paul took him pretty seriously. Let's go to Ephesians chapter five, verse one. 
Paul says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Now, walk in the way of love. I wonder what Paul means by that, right? Maybe by this, he means that when you happen to think about it, when it's convenient and it wouldn't be too much of a problem, consider how you might do a little something for somebody sometime if it's convenient, right? That's probably what he meant. Or we could keep reading. He says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Now he defines it right here. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul makes it abundantly clear. We are to love as Christ loved us, and that is the cross-shaped way, the cruciform life. And if there's any chance of mistakenly thinking that by loving others, that maybe he's talking about, maybe you're supposed to love others by speaking the truth in love and telling people, you know, that hard truth. That's what he means here. Maybe he's talking about turning water into wine. That sounds fun way that Jesus loved. Or maybe it's making whips because right now that's what I want to do to love people, right? If there's any mistake, he makes it abundantly clear here, doesn't he? He, That we know there's no room for interpretation. He says, love the way Jesus did when he died for us on a cross. So we must lay down our lives for one another, just like Jesus did for us. Paul didn't think Jesus was joking. Living and loving like Jesus is no joke. Obeying Jesus requires daily sacrifice. It's a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life that involves dying to a life that exists primarily to meet my own interests. Now, Paul again makes this abundantly clear a few verses later in the chapter when he addresses husbands, right? So the same chapter as he just said this, a few verses later he says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what is he asking of husbands here? Love your wives. How should they love their wives? Look at what it says. He goes back to Jesus' command back in John 13, the one we saw before. Love one another as I have loved you. He says you're supposed to love the way Jesus loved the church. And how does Jesus love the church? Explicitly stated right there in the passage by giving up his life, dying for them on the cross. So he's telling husbands, you must live a cruciform, cross-shaped life in how you love your spouses, your wives. The cross is the model of what love looks like. We can't avoid it. He's calling husbands to give up their rights, to give up their rights and to love sacrificially, even when they don't feel like it. When love is no longer a feeling, they must choose to love. You know, a number of years ago, I was in a Sudanese refugee camp teaching this exact passage right here, working with a whole bunch of pastors, a big crowd of them at that point. And this is an incredibly impoverished area, right? It was so impoverished that they would regularly go 30 days or more with zero food because all the food, they were in the middle of a desert, all the food was provided by the UN. And oftentimes the UN wouldn't arrive for a month, sometimes more of zero food, just suffering upon suffering in this place. And and these churches were gathering together, and I was teaching on this exact passage at one point. And in this culture, also women are incredibly subservient to men, right? So even though there's not much food, when it comes to mealtime, the women don't sit at the table, then husband eats first, then the children eat, and whatever's left, if anything, goes to the wives, right? It's a very subservient culture there. And I was teaching on this exact passage about laying our lives down for our wives as Christ has laid his life down for the church. And there was one pastor there at the end, and he was so giddy. He's like, I've never heard this message before. I can't believe my whole life I have this woman whom I love, and yet I've never served her. I only have her serve me. And he's like, I tell you what I'm going to do. He got in front of the whole group, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home, ride my bike home, and on the way home, I'm going to stop at the market, and I'm going to buy a little bag of sugar, which was a precious commodity back then, right, at that place. And he goes, I'm going to buy a bag of sugar. I'm going to put it on my bike luggage rack. I'm going to ride up to our hut, and when I get there, I'm going to leave it on the bike. I'm going to go inside and tell my wife, come outside. I have a gift for you. 
you, a surprise for you. And he's like beaming. And she's going to come outside. She's going to see the sugar and she's going to be so excited. I can't wait to go home and share the sugar with her, right? It was so beautiful the way he was like, what does it mean for me to care for her and use all the money I have to go buy some sugar? And then the bishop at that space, the one that was over all the churches in the area, he also just got up and I couldn't believe what he said. He's like, I'm just blown away. He's like, I'm, I'm so amazed by what God is doing. And he says, I'm going to go home. And when I get home, I'm going to go talk to my wife. And I'm going to get her dress and then I'm going to go wash it myself. The whole room just burst out in like just aghast. Wow, can he possibly do this? Because in that culture, for a man to wash his wife's dress would be worse than Jesus washing the disciples' feet, especially for the chief bishop to do it. And so the whole room, a bunch of people were like, you'll never do it. They were like mocking him, like, no, no, you will never do that. There's no way you're going to go home and wash your wife's dress. And so he laid down a challenge to everyone that was there. There are about 100 people there. And he says, any of you come over Saturday afternoon, come by my house, and you can watch me. I will be washing my wife's dress outside for anyone to see, right? And a few of the guys are like, we're totally going to be there. We got to see this, right? And I love that, the idea of saying that we, we, we can't just take this as an idea. We must actually move it to application and say, Lord, what does this look like for me? Because these aren't just hyperbole and exaggeration. But it's also to say what I teach on this passage so frequently, as we look at the call upon husbands to lay down their lives for their wives, I've had many wives come and go, wow, I mean, what's required of husbands is mind-blowing. God actually asks that of all the husbands? I mean, that seems like such a, a difficult task for a husband to be asked to love that much. What they don't seem to get is what Paul has been saying here is nothing new specific to husbands. Because remember, a few verses earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, what did it say? Follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. That's to everyone. The passage in 525 to husbands is just the specific application to them because their culture was actually quite similar to my Sudanese brother's culture and the way that women were so subservient. But this is the standard, not just for husbands, but for wives, for children, for pastors, for leaders, for everyone. We are to love as Christ loved us. That's the standard, the cruciform life. And so maybe some of us don't like Paul. We're like, that seems pretty intense. Paul's always been too intense for me. I like the apostle, the beloved John apostle, the one Jesus loved. He's a little more gentle, so let's see what he has to say, right? Now, some of you may know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, right? That Jesus died for us. But let's look again at the other John 3, 16. We saw it again this past summer, but let's look again. The other John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his, love, his, his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. I mean, do we need to do a deep dive into the Greek to make sense of that? Right? There's, you don't need to know Aramaic or Greek to make sense of what he's saying there. He's just quoting Jesus yet again. And he's showing this is what a sacrificial life looks like. To love others. It comes at a cost. And it looks like the cross. This is what love looks like. Therefore, we need to be laying down our lives for one another. John took this directly from Jesus. And then a couple verses later, in verse 23, he says it this way. This is his commandment. He's quoting Jesus. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. I mean, does that sound familiar? Remember back to John 13, the one we looked at earlier. It said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see, Paul and John took this seriously. This was the call upon the church. And again, lest you think that this, again, is, is just spiritualized language that just means, well, it means you'll face some difficulties. And 
you can really just do it as long as you're having good thoughts towards others, as long as you have good, good intentions towards others. That's all it means. Just speak the truth in love and, and make sure that you're having good thoughts in your mind towards other people. That's probably what he's saying. John blows that out of the water and makes it crystal clear. So let's go back again to 1 John 3, 16, but look at the whole context of what he says here in these few verses. The one we just read, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now he's going to clarify here what this means exactly in this circumstance. 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with word and speech, but with actions and truth. Paul is saying we must live with actions, actively taking steps to love others in sacrificial ways. Caring deeply for those around us. Now, there's so many other passages we can look at here where he states it over and over and over again. But I think I've I've put enough out there to make the point that, that, church, we are called to live in love like Jesus. That's our calling as children, as his followers. If we want to be called disciples or as apprentices or the followers of Jesus, this means we must take his command seriously. It means we must align our lives to be more like his, as I keep saying. We must align our hearts to become more like his so that what we love more and more becomes what he loves. And over time, as we continue this journey, we're going to see our lives begin to reflect his more and more and more naturally. From how we spend our time and money to how we care for our kids or or how we love our spouses, how we enjoy entertainment, how we celebrate, how we take phone calls from Comcast service representatives, right? That was the one I always struggled with as a kid. I just somehow dehumanized them with the customer service representative, just yell at people, get mad at people, not remembering that that's a human on the other end of the phone line just doing a job, right? How we interact online, what we post and how we post it. I mean, this should impact every aspect of our life. What does it mean to put other people's interests ahead of our own? And we're not going to be able to walk in, this per- in perfection this side of eternity, right? We'll never be perfect at it this side of eternity. And that's okay. We're on a journey. But we got to get on that journey and continue to walk with Jesus in this journey. And it will give, the more we do it, the more freedom it gives us to continue to experience his abundant life and to love others more freely. Now, I want to emphasize this life of Jesus, it, it, it's an invitation from him. It's not mandated upon us. There's many people who say, you know what, I just want to believe in him. I just want the benefits. I don't really want to live this life. And you know what, and a lot of people, it seems a good chunk of the body of Christ around the world, that's kind of their, their place. It's like, I just, I just want the good stuff. I don't actually want to be a disciple, right? But this is an invitation that Jesus gives us to be his disciples, to be his followers, to live this life, to experience more and more of the life and the love that he's called us to experience, this abundant life that he's called for us. And it should not be seen as a burden. And I recognize specifically in this time we're in right now, 18, 19 months into COVID, whatever it is, that many of us are weary and exhausted. We we talked about that a few weeks ago. And, And Jesus says that he's come for the weary and the broken. He says, cast your burdens upon me and I will give you rest, right? He says that you come to me, Lord. He says, tells us to come to him as his Lord and he will care for us, right? And that is true. We can't give away what we don't have. We have to be making sure that as we do this, we're giving out of an overflow of Christ's love in us and his life in us, that all of it is deeply rooted in a life that we are experiencing in the spirit with God. This should never lead to condemnation that I've not done enough in any way. It is an invitation that he's inviting us into. I mean, if you haven't purchased it yet, I highly recommend, again, that book I recommended a few weeks ago called An Invitation to the Jesus Life by Jan Johnson. Right? I'd highly recommend picking up a copy. And if you do, make sure that you don't just read it as fast as you can, but read a chapter like a week or every few days and then do some of the exercises. If you did pick it up and you've already read it, 
Go back and do the exercises. One, like one chapter is worth a week because we have to make sure we're living out of the, the overflow of the love of Christ in our lives as we do this. Otherwise, it just becomes works and we are not actually demonstrating his love to the world. I love the way Jan Johnson puts it in this, that book. She says, death to self is releasing the desire to have things my way and being open to how God leads me today. It makes way for the eternal kind of life that we were born for. I love that. Death to self is releasing the desire to have things my way, do things the way I want them done, and being open for how God leads me today. And as a result of doing that, it opens us up to the life that Jesus has called us for, of his abundant life. It's the exact opposite of what we talked about a couple weeks ago of incurvatus in se, right? Where it's that life of that's curved inwards. This is a life curved outwards towards others. And one of the most amazing things about this, we don't have to do it alone. We get to do it with Jesus, empowered by his Holy Spirit. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So what Paul here is saying is that he has died to the law. And now through the Holy Spirit, Jesus dwells with him now. And it's no longer just based on what he can do on his own. It's no longer based on the flesh of, of him pulling himself up by his own bootstraps or him, but of him just sacrificially living a life for others by his own strength. But now he says it's through the strength of the Holy Spirit that he lives this life that is otherly and sacrificial towards others. And the same is true for us today. This is the life that we're called for, empowered by the Holy Spirit, living an otherly life curved outwards towards one another, the cross-shaped, cruciform life. We can surrender our lives to him, and we can seek to live the life that he's called us to. Because God is so, so, so good. And because of that, we don't need to fear surrendering our lives to him. Because he is so good. We don't need to fear surrendering our lives or our time or our resources or, or any of those things because it brings incredible freedom as we surrender our lives to him. We have nothing to be afraid of when we seek the Lord for his desires for how we spend our time and resources. I mean, I would encourage us to make a regular practice daily or multiple times a day of asking the Holy Spirit to direct our attention to what he is doing and the lives of the people around us, coworkers, family, friends, to keep our hearts open to his leading, to increase our capacity to live and love more like Jesus, to keep asking him to inconvenience us in the midst of the day with what he's doing in the lives of others. I also want to encourage us to prayerfully sit before the Lord our schedule of how we prioritize our time and go before him and say, do I need to create space for more flexibility to give you more room to move in and through my life? Have I organized and scheduled the Lord and the Spirit out of my days by filling everything to the max to the way that no longer is there space for him to move because I scheduled him out of it? Also prayerfully set my Lord before the Lord your finances, your budget, or your next purchase, vacation, whatever the thing is, and say, Lord, help me to not be white-knuckled upon my finances and saying, mine, but open my hands up to you, Lord. What does it mean for me to be able to be otherly in regards to the finances? Maybe that means more staycations and date night ins than date night outs. Prayerfully seek the Lord of what does it mean to sacrificially love our spouse, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers. Jesus has called us to live a life that is cruciform, cross-shaped, otherly towards others. This is the life that Jesus lived. And it's not just so we can say, wow, he's amazing. Let's worship him and sing more songs. Though we do need to worship him and sing more songs about him. 
but it's for us to get in that wheelbarrow, to trust him that he's got it and make space in our life so that he, we can follow his leading and we can lay our lives down for those that are around us, partnering with him and seeing his kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, it can be overwhelming sometimes to consider the ask of what you say, that your friends are those who lay their lives down for others, that this is what you've asked of your disciples. And so I just pray, Lord, with the gentleness that we talked about a couple weeks ago, of that you are the one that it says, a bruised reed you do not break, a smoldering wick you don't snuff out because of your gentleness, Lord. Gently may you move into our hearts and speak to us right now what it is that you would have for us to take away from this. Lord, of what area of our lives, Lord, that maybe we've been holding too tightly to. Lord, realign our hearts to yours, Father, in any areas where it's out of alignment. Help us, usher us into the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life, more and more, Jesus. Help us to love others the way that you've loved us. Help us to call upon you, Holy Spirit, to inconvenience us all throughout the day and to follow your leading and your guidance as we enter into your way of life. Oh, Lord, carry us in this journey as we move more and more into loving others the way that you have loved us. Thank you, Jesus.